0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host hello everybody and welcome to this edition of the world soccer talk podcast i'm your host richard farley thank you very much for joining us Upsets, big results, goal scoring exploits? Mm, not this week. This week was more about the subtle, the appreciation of a good draw. The shades of grey in a one goal result, the nuance of the Premier League's last match day in November. First place Leicester and second place Manchester United? A draw. The derby between Tottenham and Chelsea? Draw. Arsenal with three points they should claim at Norwich? Nope, draw. There were certainly some decisive results this weekend, most notably Manchester City reclaiming first place with a win over Southampton. But as I bring my co-host Lawrence McKenna in, we're left looking for meaning in an otherwise mercurial weekend. Carter Trier, normally on the show, is away this weekend, leaving us with a two-man pod. And Lawrence, let's start out at the King Power Stadium, where the result is probably less notable than the record that was set in the process, Manchester United gets a one one draw against formerly League leading Leicester, but let's start with Jamie Vardy and and where do we start with Jamie Vardy as ter- in terms of historical perspective? This is eleven appearances a row now where he scored a goal.
1: Fantastic. And on to the real football.
0: Seems like seems like he uh, deserves a little <laughs> bit more at this point. I, although you can understand why people are struggling with a little bit, because we haven't really stopped to kind of form what our conception of Jamie Vardy is. Is he a star? Is he a lucky workman-like person? Or, or can you be both?
1: You can be both. Uh, I think he doesn't fit into the conventional... Well, he does actually fit into the conventional story, but it's just the way that people... The problem was his off-season somewhat besmirched his image um, mm-hmm. and didn't necessarily play into the kind of guy that people would normally want to build I mean, up in football, the clean living kind of guy.
0: It's ugly, but I think some people probably forgot what happened this offseason halfway around the world with Jamie. I wasn't even only halfway around the world. He's developed quite the reputation for a couple of other things, but he was, yeah. he was one of the people that was involved in that. Oh, what's I'm searching for a euphemism here when we probably shouldn't use euphemisms, right?
1: Uh, that time when they all had really more than dinner,
0: Mm, yeah, mm. so
1: th- there was
0: an explicit tape that got out, uh, and I don't even know how to describe let's, let's,
1: it. I mean, you don't even need to go any further than that. I mean, it's really... Let's put it this way. There are certain things which don't reflect well uh, upon these guys within this team sometimes, and I think that that's part of it. I also think it's got something to do with the way that uh, the team he plays for, the way that he is presented within that team... And the way that people choose to portray him, you can definitely... uh, But the the, the difference this season is, and it's fantastic, is that he has a manager who's going to use him in a position which... And has a manager who people respect and has a very clear MO. And there's a series of things which look fantastic for Jamie Vardy. The point is... I actually don't know what the point is. It's very hard to draw the the narrative line with him. Basically, he scored a lot of goals. It's fantastic. It it works within the system. I think you might be onto something here
0: because is there a need for balance here because you think back a couple of years to Luis Suarez and this is something that people openly struggled with when thinking about him as the best player in the Premier League, but they kept recalling the incidents with Evra and Ivanovic and Cialini and it was a discussion that took place in the front page of papers whereas Jamie Vardy that's been kind of brushed under the rug
1: because he's English, mate. You think, Um, you think that's it? I do think it's part of it. Um, Mm. And I also think that it's that it wouldn't have gotten many clicks or it wouldn't have gotten much reading because it's Jamie Vardy. It's not someone who's at a top club originally.
0: Yeah, maybe that's true. And now he's at the top
1: of the league. He has the spotlight on him. See, that's the story
0: we keep concentrating on, right? From non-league to league. Is it also because Jamie Vardy isn't viewed as this uber-talented, blessed, privileged athlete like Luis Suarez is? And in that way, we're more apt to forgive him because maybe we see a little bit more of us in him and therefore we're more willing to forgive him. Whereas Louis Suarez shouldn't be doing things that he has to be forgiven for.
1: Partly. I, I, I mean, I guess it's also partly that I just, I don't really find Jamie Vardy very relatable. Um, he sort of has the look of someone that would not have liked me at school. If you're English. Um, and I'm sure he's a lovely guy. I, you know, there's, there's nothing I'm going to ca- comment on about his character. I'm just commenting more ab- ab- upon the, from a distance, the look that people get, hmm. um, and it's, it is also the things that, you know, we know he said, and, you know, I, it's also this kind of like everywhere I go at the moment, and it's a funny thing to say, but, you know, chat, whatever, get whatever it, for me, it's almost like the idolizer. It's the same thing as the people that follow Unilad or, um, you know, lad Bible or those kind of things. Like, I, I know that there's something about that, which seems appealing, but, it, and it, there's, there's something which is sort of quite visceral about it, but it just doesn't, white fulfill me Hmm. and I guess that's what I'd say about the when I see Vardy play I get like you know there's that's what makes me question whether he's going to fit into that England lineup and I hope (laughs) he does but I I just hope that there's there's that we see even more nuance to it Hmm. because at the moment all the narratives seem rather reductive about him and maybe that's what I don't like is that there doesn't seem to be anyone that's particularly taken a good enough look at him which goes beyond the this lad used to play for Fleetwood, et cetera, et cetera. But what, then when you see him play for Ranieri, you think, well, surely then Ranieri's found that appreciation and there's more to it. But, y- you know, you don't know. There's a pragmatism to Ranieri. So maybe there's a lot of contrast there.
0: But I also think that we're starting to reach a little bit here. And there's a lot of speculation in just how we're talking about this issue, because, as you said, nobody is... Nobody is asking for his views on his situation the same way that they bombarded Luis Suarez about, okay, well, you're doing so well, but do you feel the need to apologize to Patrice ever, over and over and over again? Jamie, you're doing so well, but what happened this summer with that tape and what you said? And um, do you feel like you need to apologize to people or do you feel like now that you're... Uh, now that you're in this spotlight, do you have more of an obligation to be a role model and not do such things? I, I didn't know you were going to take this conversation this direction, Lawrence, but I think this is actually a little bit more fascinating than the record that he set this weekend because it does, it does speak a little bit to the hypocrisy we have in covering these players that Luis Suarez, the story there didn't have the same narrative, so... People gravitated towards that negative and continue to stoke that fire. Whereas with Jamie Vardy, it does have the narratives of him being from lower leagues. He's coming to this point in his career where he's well into the prime of his athletic career, and then also he's playing for Leicester City and not a bigger club, and all of these things that you've mentioned. I, I think it's very compelling. I kind of wish we would have talked about this before.
1: Well, it's the selective side, isn't it? Um, and you know, I. I, I you know I wish we had spoken about this before, but it, it, the selective side of the way that we cover things, and I think you know obviously it, it fits certain narratives, and I, I, you know I think that's the point is that actually behind the scenes we know there's a lot more to go on there. I'd imagine there's a lot to Vardy, but then there's also I don't know that there, there's some old and there's something about him which reminds you of an old Premier League striker, mm. you know. And right. that's all. That's maybe why, maybe it feels a little bit like regression, the fact that Rude took it to the next level. And, it, you know, that was the um, the pinnacle of what they, we believe Manchester United could do at that time. And we believed it was moving away from that kind of the laddie approach to football. And it seems mm. to have gone back towards that. Maybe I'm drawing the wrong lines. It might feel, the, the problem is, I would have no problem saying, Jeremy Vardy, you know, well done. It's a wonderful record. And I think you're playing great football. But it's the representation of that which I have a problem with, which maybe I think makes it unfair to cover him in such a way because he doesn't have control necessarily over that representation. Yeah, I
0: think what you're really asking for here is that we should give this story the due diligence that we've done other stories in the past, whether it be Luis Suarez or even how Nicola Anelka was treated after his uh, salute after scoring for West Brom two years ago, yeah. where that story was very much pursued. I, I think I'm with you on this. I, don't, I think I'm with you on this and being in a very much a middle ground where That'd it's be- not so much of Jamie Vardy that I have a problem. With it's just the whole wrapping of this story and ignoring the context that we would apply to other people. I do want to I do want to say this because you and I were kind of soft footing around actually describing what happened, which is not really fair at all. So this summer, when Lester was on tour in Asia, Jamie Vardy was among a number of players who were embroiled in a scandal that involved a sex tape. And some racist language within that sex, sex tape towards the, their partners in that tape. It was Jamie Vardy, some other Leicester players. Very nice
1: of you to say partners.
0: I, I don't know what else to say because I don't know that much. About, I didn't watch the sex hey. tape, so I don't.
1: <laughs> I believe afterwards they all shouted, "Hey, hey, we're fifty-fifty, all invested in this. Remember, <laughs> everyone's a partner in this tape."
0: Yeah, I, I guess I could have just said other people in the tape, right? Um, but Jamie Vardy. It was very much a controversy four, four months ago. Now, the story around Jamie Vardy is what he did this weekend, scoring the first goal uh, during Manchester United's visit to King Power Stadium. The match ended 1-1. Let's actually talk about the match for a couple of minutes here, Lawrence. Uh, Lack of chances throughout the match. I think we saw a couple of good chances in the first half for Leicester. Not only the goal, but one or two that was manufactured by Riyad Mahrez. And then a couple of counterattacks in the second half. Manchester United, from their most part, their best chances came off of corner kicks, scoring in injury time in the first half through Bastian Schweinsteiger. Overall, I thought it was an interesting match, although not particularly entertaining. And uh, I want to hear your thoughts, but I think it spoke a lot to where both teams are at this point in the season.
1: Yeah, certainly so. Uh, I mean, if you look at I, what I would say is again another formation change from Van Gaal. Yeah, what did you think about that? Why, why do you think that? Um, why do you think he made the change to a three-man central defense? You know what? I don't know, because there's very few people who would advocate that in the Premier League right now. Most statisticians that I speak to say it doesn't tend to bring much defensive solidity. And early on, that that looked exactly the way. I wonder if it was to uh, negate what looks often like you. You you often feel when you see Leicester attacking that there are three points to that attack. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if there was supposed to be a man to each area. But I don't know that that's a very basic uh, tactical analysis.
0: I have a couple of theories. I think one has to do with Chris Smalling and the fact that he is becoming a very special defender, not only in his performance, but his athleticism. I think going Mm -hmm. to that three man central defense, it really allowed him to essentially mark Vardy. During open play, allowed him to follow Vardy completely. and leave two central defenders, and then also Leicester is so good with their wide play between Mares and yeah. Albrighton, and although going to that uh, that five man defense essentially allowed Leicester when they moved their fullbacks forward to have a numerical advantage, it also allowed those wingbacks to trail Mark Albrighton and Riyad Mares. And when you have a Leicester team that tends to drop their second striker pretty far back as we saw saw Okazaki kind of drop back and try to fill that void between Vardy in the striker position and then Drinkwater and Conte deep midfield, I think it left Manchester United in a situation where they didn't have to really commit to having more than Blind and McNair back there. They could have Smalling kind of keep tabs on Vardy, their wingbacks keep track on the wide players. And they could have Leicester covered, and as we saw um, on Saturday, the one goal that Leicester had wasn't really from open play; it was off the counter
1: attack, off a corner kick. But not only that, I think the one goal that Manchester United had in this game came from Schweinsteiger. Right. So you know, I think that uh, again, I, I I know that we lament the way that um, the lack of penetration under Van Gaal. Um, and I, I think there's more to it. I, I would love to. I, I guess. A lot of people fantasise about what this team could be, which is Martial, Lingard, Memphis, Mm -hmm. Rooney in behind or Matter in behind or, you know, someone pulling the strings for all three of those and then a solid defence just behind that, which is what Manchester United seem to have had. I I still think that there's a lot more to Van Gaal here that maybe goes underappreciated and there's there's a sense of frustration for someone who's essentially trying to wipe the slate clean with a lot of these players, maybe with bad habits that they've picked up down the years, those kind of things, or teaching them to almost play in the right direction. I might, I might be wrong, but very often, if you look at where Van Gaal's been before, you see that he's someone who players are either relieved to get rid of or realise what they've learned from him mm. after. Schweinzager um, being a good and, example and, of that. And, and now you see that go full circle. Um, but then then there come the frustrating moments when you know Manchester United fans, and even me before the game, were saying, well, Vardy's not going to score against this defence. Yeah, and did. then what happens 27 minutes in but the, almost the perfect Ranieri piece of play uh, as far as we're concerned with Leicester this season and what Manchester United might consider as an oversight on their own part.
0: Yeah, I think it was Paul Wilson in the Guardian who pointed out that if Ashley Young hadn't picked up that early yellow card on Riyad Mahrez, he probably takes down Jamie Vardy on that counter-attack. And it's one of those subtle things that happens where uh, you realize those little building blocks early in the game really matter. But, I think you're right to credit Van Hall. I think he implemented a system on Saturday that essentially shut down Jamie Vardy. I mean, you can't, I think it'd be a little bit ridiculous to ask Chris Smalling to continue to follow Jamie Vardy, even on corner kicks when Chris Smalling is their primary threat on corner kicks. And in that respect, yeah. uh, the one chance that there, there are two chances. I think Jamie Vardy had the, the one in the, that he scored the goal on. And the second one, again, coming off of a counter in the second half where he elected to try to play it across to a and it didn't even result in a shot. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is just Manchester United's attack. I think I think they're v- desperately lacking Ander Herrera. He's the one person that brings some energy. And when he's out, they don't really have that person that can replace place him. Their most energetic player beyond him is Juan Mata, who is seems like four steps slower than Ander Herrera. But the other thing that I really did like this weekend was Anthony Martial. I thought he played... A pretty good game, moving off of his wide positions, cutting into the middle uh, when he did have the ball, drawing the defense to him, kicking it out wide, often to Ashley Young who put in some good crosses from the left. Uh, I still think it comes down to Wayne Rooney though. You know, when we saw Wayne Rooney leave the game, it's just really hard not to look at Manchester United and wonder what they would be like in 90 minute spells
1: when Wayne Rooney's not there the moves breaking down, those kind of things, just movement stopping, just all that kind of stuff. It almost seems the antithesis of what United fans want right now. Yeah,
0: it was that shot in the first half when he had the ball in the left of the box and he had it on his right foot and he was coming in from the left and he let he left it to try to hit a shot with the outside of his right foot and went right to Schmeichel. And he's just doing Mm -hmm. a lot of little things like that where it's just kind of lazy and lacking confidence. In the second half, he had the ball about 24 yards out, and he had a defender right in front of him. And instead of trying to find somebody wide and then moving into the box, he just elected to take a shot and it went right into the defender. And it's just little things like that that indicate that either he's out of shape and doesn't have the energy to do more, is lacking confidence, and is making bad decisions, or maybe it's neither, and he's just at this point a bad player.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or yeah, maybe it's a combination, yeah, um, of of, of, of uh, you know a number of things, it, including I think the similarities between managing decline in Real Madrid at the moment and one of their stars, and the stars mm. that we see at Manchester United right now, and looking at maybe not even calling it decline, but transition in their play. Future is Manchester United
0: attacker, you're talking about there, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ugh. Ugh. That that bring him in alongside Rooney. Oh no, thank you. Uh, oh, wait a minute, they can't counter attack anymore. Why?
1: There's no pace. Thank mm. you. Uh,
0: did you did you learn anything this weekend about Leicester or Manchester
1: United? I I learned. Well, I mean, well, not necessarily learn. We learned that Leicester's uh, almost complete lack of, I don't respect, but their, their their lack of regard for the occasion, I think, is good because they they. I, don't, I almost feel like there's, there's a contrast between um, Nigel and, uh, what's Ranieri's first name? <laughs> Claudio. Claudio. And, um, and the fact that the players are missing and they're like, you know what? Yeah, we are. We are a better team than we thought. Hmm. And it's about raising the expectation level, I think, for a lot of those players. And a lot of them realizing, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, how do I, you, I can play in a European style.
0: But how do you reconcile this result with what we saw Arsenal do to them earlier this year? They're Arsenal's 5-2 win at the King Power Stadium.
1: That's a good point. Uh, also, bear in mind that's earlier on in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think Ranieri was very much getting an idea of the way that his players were actually going to play as opposed to the way that he thought they could play. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it was more about... Uh, he, he probably I think he learned a lot um, from that result and that display and the shape of the team during that. And basically how to shut the opposition down. And I think you saw it. That's what I'm saying. is You saw it with that goal is... The perfect counterattack. Yeah.
0: yeah, I agree with you. The perfect outlet. There, 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 did seem to be a little bit more of a realization of their mortality on Saturday, as compared to when they mm-hmm. played Arsenal, and as a result, they had a much better result. Well, Leicester and Manchester United was the weekend's marquee matchup, but it wasn't the only fixture of a nine-match weekend. One that started on Saturday at Sunderland, where an early red card to Stokes Ryan Shawcross gave way to two late Black Cats goals. Sunderland get their second win in a row, two nil. Aston Villa got on to the score sheet twice against visiting Watford, but it's the Hornets who move into 11th place after their 3-2 win at Villa Park. Everton thought they had a late winner at Dean Court with Ross Barkley giving them a 3-2 lead in stoppage time, but after a pitch invasion that carried the game into the 98th minute, Bournemouth got a late equalizer from Junior Stanislaus, his second goal of the game, leaving the team's drawn at 3-3. Crystal Palace got braces from Yannick Bolasie and James McArthur en route to the most lopsided win of the weekend, a 5-1 victory over Newcastle. Man City scored twice in the first 20 minutes on their way to a 3-1 win over visiting Southampton. On Sunday, Tottenham extended their unbeaten run to 13, albeit in a disappointing 0-0 against Chelsea. A second-half own goal from Winston Reid allowed West Brom to take a 1-1 draw at West Ham. A second-half penalty converted by James Milner carried Liverpool to a 1-0 win over visiting Swansea and Arsenal, suffering three more injuries, were held to a 1-1 in Norwich City. Those results put Manchester City back on top with 29 points, even with Leicester City, who sits second thanks to goal difference. Manchester United is third, one point back, with Arsenal another point back, sitting two clear of Tottenham and four clear of Liverpool. At the bottom, thanks to two wins in a row, Sunderland is now 17th, two points up on Bournemouth and Newcastle, who both have 10 points. Aston Villa made progress this weekend, but they still have only 5 points, and they're on pace for only 14 this season. We're going to take our first break right now, regroup, and when we come back, we'll talk about the other games at the top of the table. City's visit to Southampton, Arsenal's trip to Norwich, and Tottenham's derby with Chelsea. Please stay with us after this music. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Let's get back to the field. Let's talk about Tottenham and Chelsea. Lawrence, there's a lot to talk about here. I want to get to Diego Costa in a second, but what lingers for me after watching this game on Sunday is this is the second occasion that we've had for Tottenham this year to really kind of put aside some fears that seem to linger constantly with them. The first being their league match with Arsenal earlier this year, where we thought they were the stronger team going in and could really make a statement. And it's the same thing here, but again, they're left with a draw. And I can't help but feel that this is kind of the lingering lack of confidence in a team that hasn't really done it before. And what I mean done it, going out, get these results, secure the top four place. This group of players at Tottenham hasn't done that yet, and I think that's
1: that seemed to be what was missing. Yeah, I mean, to 100% um, agree that I... <laughs> I think it's it's also partly down to having seen the the portions that I did see of this game. Um, I actually, I felt like it was quite scrappy in the second half. In the first half, I actually felt like Tottenham were on top. Mm. Um, and I think Chelsea know that. But I, I think that you know, you've then got to look at the... These are two exceptional games because they're for a start, they're derbies and the second one is played against a Chelsea team who know what their MO is under Mourinho, which is mm-hmm. to make the game as hard for the other side as possible.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And, and they did that. And Spurs did have that great result against City earlier this year, so you don't want to take that away from them.
1: But like you yeah, said... They the essentially guys... they laid a blueprint there for, right. for the other teams that have done it since, essentially. Yeah,
0: but as you mentioned, these games with Arsenal and Chelsea are actual occasions that people build expectations for. And each time, it seems like Spurs... I I guess I don't really know how to describe it. It's one of those things where when the final whistle blows, you're not entirely surprised, but you are a little bit disappointed because they're just not seizing these occasions. And until they do, there are going to be lingering doubts, not only with us, but you would imagine with the team itself, because at some point they need to get one of these games where there's so much expectation behind them into the win column just for no other reason than to prove that when the games really matter at the end of the season, they're going to be able to do the same.
1: I mean, uh, it is it is a bit of a jump to say that they need to prove it to themselves. I understand where you're coming from with that, but essentially yeah. they'll prove that against City. You'd say the same, Arsenal must be frustrated drawing to Spurs. Chelsea have a completely different thing to prove to themselves. And Tottenham are going to look at the table and think, well, we're two points behind Arsenal, four points off the top. Essentially what we've done there is, you know, if we had a manager that was portrayed as a savvy, more, uh, maybe more, less naive looking manager, you know, not someone who slightly rounded cheeks and looks a little bit sometimes (laughs) funny you would say that the portrayal will be a bit different i think perhaps uh as you alluded to we're speculating a little bit as
0: to what tottenham feels about themselves and how they read into this result let's go to the actual headline from this which of course is going to be some kind of controversy or infighting with chelsea diego costa benched for this match after what was reported to be a midweek dressing room altercation with jose Mourinho. Various at one point during this match, then second half, he got up to warm up. wasn't called into the game. Flipped his, took off his bib. Seemed to flip it in the direction of Jose Mourinho at the on the bench at White Hart Lane. Uh, let's. I want to read a tweet from our friend Nipun Chopra who got in touch with us on Friends Twitter. Friends Stretch. <laughs> he asked, "Are we getting carried away with Costa Bibgate, or is he biting the hand that feeds?" What do you think, Lawrence?
1: Do I only have those two options?
0: Yes. No. You, you can say whatever you want.
1: Um, I don't know which hand to feed because that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is that actually both hands that feed don't seem to be doing the right thing. So Mourinho didn't seem to do the right thing before, um, play Costa at the right times, but has maybe not set up his team to react to these kind of situations particularly well. And the other hand that feeds is obviously the club. And maybe he, he is rightly frustrated with them because of what was maybe sold to him when he first came. And that maybe hasn't fully played out. Um, You'd imagine there's a lot of pressure on him at the moment because he's really the only competent striker at the club, um, uh, you know, because of the way that other strikers are <laughs> there. Um, and I think that's part of it. Is actually Mourinho says this is fairly normal. I wouldn't make too much of it. Um, it's a, it's a very public um, outlashing, but I, I don't know how much more I want to read into that. I, I I know it is partly like you know, obviously he's throwing it in front of everyone else and those kind of things, but I. <laughs> I know, there's, for me, it, it, it almost just seems like another week in Chelsea's life. You know? Yeah.
0: After the match, Jose Mourinho called Diego Costa privileged for not having been dropped before. To me, there's an inconsistency here, Lawrence. We see that Oscar has had a lot of time, a lot of trouble solidifying spot in the starting 11. Oscar is certainly a very talented player. Uh, Costa now gets dropped. We saw John Terry drop very quickly earlier this year. But we see the persistence with Sess, with Matic, with Hazard. Not that all of those players haven't been dropped, but when they have been dropped, it's been for a very short period of time. I just don't see, I don't see when somebody gets put in the doghouse, when somebody doesn't, what the consistency is there. And maybe I'm not entitled to see that. Maybe it has something more to do with perfor- than with performance, but it seems like it's a very haphazard kind of thing with Mourinho right now. Do you agree with that?
1: Partly, I would say it's also individual man management. Uh, if it was working, maybe we would say it was excellent rotation. Mm. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, Cesc is a very interesting case study because in I think Barney Renee tweeted today in the 18 minutes that Chelsea had the ball in the first half, Sesc gave it away so many times, so many people actually lost count um, and I think uh, when it comes to managing other guys, I don't know whether it's as simple for Mourinho as in the doghouse out the doghouse, I think that there's probably a scale between him and just the player which maybe we're just not privileged to um, but you'd still say it leads to some frustration, again it's probably something that if a player is mature enough or if a player is understanding enough, then they probably have ways of dealing with that basically, which is, well, then I'll play better.
0: Hmm. Only 14 total shots in this game. Spurs had four shots on target. Chelsea had one shot on target. Spurs, it should be said, that quick turnaround from traveling to Azerbaijan, I believe it was, on Thursday in Europa League. Let's move yeah. Let's move on to Manchester City and Southampton. Uh, city, 3-1 victory on paper. It looks good. Jumping out with two goals in the first 20 minutes on paper. Again, that's reminiscent to kind of peak City that we saw for most of the season, but Lawrence, I thought this was a little bit fortunate, especially those two goals that we saw. And ultimately, I wasn't too convinced by City and probably more worrisome. The right side of the defense, again, did not look that good to me.
1: Yeah, I think City have got some inconsistency in their personnel right now, which is definitely a problem for them um, because of obvious reasons um, to do with, you know, events which have gone on um, in Paris, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know how much longer we can continue to, um, rely on that. It's just a very simple explanation. I'd also say you know Demichelis is is problematic in that backline. Um, mm. Although you'd also say, yeah, is he is, yeah. he is he the, the best same. of a, a bunch of poor options at this point? I would say none of them are poor options. I'd say that I don't know which is the best combination for them. Mm. People will have done found as to why Otamendi was dropped, came back into the side, um, and obviously they looked very different up front. But that's also because they were challenged by a team who didn't have their main striker, their main man up front. Um, y- you've also got to say that sitting in front of that were maybe the two right guys, which is Fernandinho and Delph. I think it was an overall structure, and I understand why the right side looks so weak, but I also think that sitting just in front of them were the two correct people in this game for me.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Um, you mentioned uh, Graziano Pele wasn't in the lineup for Southampton. Uh, 3-1 to was the result. First two goals, somewhat fortunate, giveaway by Maya on the first one that Raheem Sterling eventually set up Kevin De Bruyne on. And then Fabian Delph, a very deflected shot for the second one. Uh, What I really want to talk about with Manchester City, and we're going to talk about Arsenal right now too, that's the next game we're getting to, their 1-1 result at Norwich, is injuries. It seems like every time we talk about Manchester City, we mention... Vincent Company now looks like he's gone for a couple more weeks. David Silva hasn't played in a couple months. Pablo Zabaleta, I believe, has two appearances this year. Joe Hart wasn't in the lineup today. We've harped on those guys a lot because we insist how important they are to the team, in addition to Sergio Aguero, who missed six weeks. Arsenal, of course, has had a lot of injuries too, and today... They had Alexis Sanchez go down. Lauren Koscielny, I believe, only played 13 minutes. And then after the game, it's reported that Santi Cozola would have come off with a knee injury if Arsenal hadn't already wasted, all not wasted, but used all their substitutions. Are we being a little bit two-faced about how we talk about these teams' injuries? We use them as an excuse for City, but with Arsenal, we just kind of treat them as if they're endemic to the squad.
1: I mean, different managers probably speak about them in different ways. Arsene Wenger tend to shy away in the past from Arsenal's injuries, which has made it difficult because maybe people have felt like he hasn't been particularly um, expressive or transparent. And maybe people aren't entitled to know about that. But when it comes to City, I think the coverage is going to be different because the construction of the squad and the construction of the team and the overall philosophy serves them differently. Um, You'd say that there are also, I mean, the problem is you also look at it and you think, well, they've been replaced by stars Hmm. Um, so the personnel, you know, Otamendi builds as a huge player in that. De Michaelis is a big name in that. Sanya has always been building one of the best right-backs in the world. Um, and even then in midfield, when they choose to rotate, then it's basically a difference in personnel. It's a difference in the way that those personnel are treated and difference in the construction of that squad. I think with Arsenal, it seems like almost a truism now about the injuries. Mm. But then Klopp came in and said at Liverpool, if we're going to treat people like horses, then they'll be like horses and they will get injuries. Mm. And I think in, you know, I, I do think that the Premier League somewhat becomes a bit of a bubble sometimes and we just end up analysing as he's injured. Right. Well, he's injured. Well, it must be. I think the assumption very often is there's a weakness there or that something's. And I think it very often doesn't go beyond um, that kind of analysis because the teams don't allow us any more uh, in-depth analysis because there's no more information
0: Mm -hmm. i do detect over the last two or three seasons people have gotten much more skeptical about arsenal which is why today's developments transcend the 1-1 scoreline at norwich it was the second straight disappointing result for arsenal having lost 2-1 at west brom last week they're now two points behind the top off the top of the table whereas they came out of the break even with city at the top but almost that's almost a secondary concern at this point because while arsenal had a bunch of injuries throughout this year the key players in their squad Metsud also Alexis Sanchez, Lauren Koscielny, Petr Cech. Uh, I would even throw François Koukalen in there. And to a certain extent, uh, Hector Bellerin, too, I think has been spectacular. I don't know if he's key to the squad, but he's been spectacular. For the most part, those players had been healthy through the first two or three months of the year. Now, Alexis Sanchez gets thrown out there today. And people were saying that his hamstring was already bothersome before kickoff today. Uh, François Koukalen is out. Lauren Koscielny now with a hip problem. We're starting to get go from a situation where the injuries were around the periphery to players where there were redundancies to a point where the injuries are to players that are not really replaceable. We talked last week about there's no for, replacement for Kokolin. There's no replacement for Sanchez either. And while they can bring Gabriel into the team to replace Lauren Koscielny, you're going from one of the best defenders in the league to somebody who is above average promising but a step down from Koscielny. And Lawrence, I think that's where the worrisome part is here for Arsenal. Not only are we seeing this wane that you you, and me and Karta can roll our eyes and go, well, this is the Arsenal we know. And ha ha ha, all you Arsenal fans that came at us. It's like, it's like every team goes through their their bumps. But now Arsenal's bumps are coinciding with injuries that historically they haven't been able to get people back from quickly.
1: Good point. Um, you know, Sanchez obviously limped off almost straight away as soon as he got his injury, which was worrying. Um, although maybe he's just one of those straight to the straight to the point players. Um, wh- the, the difference is if you look at what their bench was, they di- they didn't really have anyone they could bring in now. And I mean, you think you're right; they're threadbare. Two more injuries, and they've got a starting eleven basically of people who are injured. Um, what you, I think, Wenger has faith in his system, and the fact that he maybe can change players in and out of that. I think he's now having the problem where he just can't change anyone in or out because there's no mm. one in when someone goes out. <laughs> um, the, the bigger problem would also be that actually today, for periods of the game, Arsenal were outplayed by Norwich. Hmm. Well, we've they're talked- outfought by Norwich.
0: We've talked about this in previous weeks, though. They, they sometimes go these 20 or 30 or sometimes 60-minute spans where they're playing on the same level, or they're sometimes outplayed by teams, and then they have those bursts that we talked about. I don't want to have that discussion again. But I do want to have the talk about just descending to other teams'
1: levels. And it seems like... That's this... part of it. You did feel like they were playing down, if that's one cliche we can get out.
0: If if there isn't that giveaway in the first half, clearance right to Metsud Ozel, chips it over the keeper... Arsenal doesn't have another goal here. And while goals are important, they change games, and who knows what Arsenal's motivations would have been had they not got that goal. Their motivation should have still been in place when they allowed the equalizer. And it just just didn't happen today. And at some point, if these results keep happening, we have to look back on the first, those two good months of the Arsenal season as potentially out of character for the team that we predicted they were going to be at the beginning of the season.
1: Maybe so. I mean, like you say, um, I think Arsenal were looking to hit them. I think they were looking to hit them by so many that maybe they'd be able to take people off towards the end of the game, mm. um, and they, that just didn't happen because they didn't they didn't put together enough intricate moves, or the intricate moves that they did put together. Norwich were very condensed at the back, so they basically broke broke those down, and then their game plan worked against Arsenal and. Basically, they worked out Arsenal were going to try and play them. And I think it worked very well today because actually they were the ones counter attacking at the end. And it was very much end to end in the last seven, eight minutes. Mm. Um, and when you look at the movement of the the likes of Oxlade Chamberlain towards the end, the not aimless crosses, but the crosses which didn't really seem to trouble the Norwich back line, you would, yeah. I mean, essentially it's very frustrating because actually. Uh, you know, Olivier Giroud is a better player than that. I'll Chamberlain is a better player than that. But Norwich was so condensed that they just pushed Arsenal out to the sides. And that's where they would have maybe needed someone like Alexis Sanchez or someone who's able to pick a pass, which they were able to do in the first half. And it just didn't happen for them because of the way that Norwich played them. Mm. And But the problem was they also left themselves so exposed at the back. Norwich uh, was, were putting great passes through too. So these aren't mutually exclusive... Um, ideas that are but you know it's not like arsenal looked like so much of the better team today they really didn't
0: no they didn't and unfortunately and this is where we have to always be careful with arsenal we start sounding like the same we start giving the same analysis that we could have given last year the year before these are different teams there are some similarities the person who has created this team of course is the same it is still very disturbing to see that the same patterns do seem to emerge for the same team six seven eight years in a row it makes every week uh, very interesting with Arsenal. You never know which team you're going to get, even though it might be the same team you would have seen six or seven years ago. Uh, stick with us, everybody. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll get you updated on what's going on in the Spanish Premier Division. And then we'll talk about the rest of the action in this weekend's Premier League. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Let's take our first trip to Europe and go to Spain, where the white shirts of the capital are still recovering from Real Madrid's embarrassment in last week's Clásico. A result that became even more worrisome, if that was even possible, when Madrid almost gave up a four goal lead midweek at Shakhtar Donetsk. On Sunday, against an Ibar team that shockingly was looking to go into Spain's top four, Madrid kind of got back on track, posting a 2 nil win thanks to a goal from Gareth Bale and a late penalty conversion from Cristiano Ronaldo, who tied Hugo Sanchez as the third-leading scorer in La Liga history. Madrid, however, still sits third thanks to wins by Atletico Madrid, who have allowed only six goals in 13 games after their 1-0 victory over Espanyol, and first-place Barcelona, who got two goals from Neymar and a goal each from Luis Suarez and Lionel Messi in a 4-0 win over Real Sociedad. Barcelona have claimed 33 of a possible 39 points through 13 rounds. This weekend's biggest game in Spain, Valencia, trip to the Sanchez Bisuan, is just now wrapping up as we're recording. Valencia is down to nine men and also down one goal in stoppage time in Seville. Lawrence, our one of our weekly ri- rituals, player of the week. Um, Boom. according to this run sheet you know <laughs> according to this run sheet you have the honor of going first.
1: No Kartik does, surely. Okay. Um, now yeah. let me let me um okay. I will will go ahead and go first. Um, My my problem is, I actually, I think I picked one of the guys that you're going to pick. But you go for (laughs) it, and I'll tell you if that was the case. Well, Lawrence is looking
0: at our notes, and I was deciding between two players
1: for for two somewhat different reasons. Making it sound off the cuff.
0: (laughs) I have, we talked about Chris Smalling. And again, I'm going to default to my privilege to not go for the best player, just the one I found most entertaining. Uh, Chris Smalling has been named player of the week, I think, two or three times on the show already. But there are very few defenders in this league that a manager can tailor their defense around the way I think Louis Van Gaal tailored his defense around Chris Smalling this week. And he he had two central defenders on side of Chris Smalling, and he allowed Chris Smalling to essentially try to neutralize Jamie Vardy. And for the most part, it worked. The one goal that Jamie Vardy did have was when Chris Smalling was a target on a corner kick and Jamie Vardy was 45 yards away from him by the time that corner kick was cleared. And I just think that it's really rare that we see a player evolved to the point where a manager can have that much trust in him or rely on him that much. And so maybe Chris Smalling didn't have the greatest of games. I think he had a pretty good game, but I thought it was very interesting to see how Louis uh, Van Hall has gained so much trust in him. But the player I'm actually going to go for this week is uh, Connor Wickham with Crystal Palace. Palace had why. Palace had a great result, 5-1, uh, or not so much great, but decisive result. And I, Wickham was involved in three or four of the goals, um, be it directly via assists or his hold-up play. And part of the reason I'm going for him is that this has been the one position on the field this year that Alan Pardew has not been able to settle on somebody. I believe he has started five different people at Stryker at various points this year. And part of that has been with Wickham's health and part of it has been with players' form. And today, I think Wickham really provided them with something that can be very useful throughout the course of the season. The thing with Wickham has always pretty much been his consistency. When he moved to Sunderland, he was regarded as this young talent that many people expected to have kind of the normal career path for somebody that is so famous so early. Um, Not that he was extremely famous, but a lot of people had high hopes in him. And then it stalled out in Sunderland. And it was only towards the end of his time at the Stadium of Light that we saw some really great performances against Chelsea and Liverpool two years ago. If he can find some consistency, some level of traction in the Premier League and be the type of player that we saw this weekend... Crystal Palace is going to be much better for it. Crystal Palace is sitting tied for 6, I believe, in the table right now, 22 points, and the only piece that they're missing is some kind of steady focal point up top, and if he can provide that, Alan Pardew's team is going to be much better off.
1: Lawrence, no Glenn Murray as well. That's I mean, now they're, now Glenn Murray left for Yeah, I, th- not I think he's one of the five reasons, but personal reasons.
0: Right. I think he's one of the five people that they've
1: started up top this year. Oh, no well, no, I think he started the set, Gunnar, I think he started no, like the Gunn, second
0: year of the season and then, and then was sold before And then I, they,
1: and then they sold him. Yeah, right. exactly. And, so, and but, so that's what I'm saying is I mean they I really feel they lack uh, they lacked that figure after he left and there're a lot of Crystal Palace fans saying to me, you know, we need him back. Not need him back, but we need another figure like him and Conor Wickham was that guy. Mm-hmm. Um obviously we'll say Jamie Vardy is a um a cursory oh. nod. Look, look at um, you making I, up what you said in the first segment. Yeah, I know, right? Um hey, everyone loves a pest. Um can I
0: <sighs> No, you
1: cannot. Another option. Emre Chan? Hmm. Emre Chan again. Sounds familiar. Week. Sounds familiar. I know. Emre Chan last week uh was, was your pick because he's so so bossed the field. But I'm kind of I'm interested in the adaptability of Emre Chan and how far that goes. Hmm. And it's another week where we've seen him playing alongside Milner. Mm-hmm. and Firmino just ahead of that, and then Henderson. And he seems like a very good complementary player, but at the same time one who... There's, there's an element of what I feel like... They, he's almost the, the Busquets of the Liverpool team, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, uh, that's who, at least I, that's what I thought he was going to become, but there's a little bit more positional versatility with how he's being used right now.
1: Yeah, although I do th- I do feel like Busquets had to be a bit more versatile when he had different players in the team. So when they had mm. Iniesta and Xavi in the team, I think he was a bit he had to be slightly more um, he he's slightly less got to choose his position and more they just it was more out of function with him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Henry Chan initially was part of that with Liverpool. Now I feel like there's a real change. I know he didn't particularly boss the field today, but again, I feel like he's picked up another position on the the pitch and made that his with Lucas out. And that's actually a pretty big thing for Liverpool. It's what Liverpool lacked over the last few years. Mm. So I'm going to say Emery Chan for, again for this weekend, two weeks in a row. That doesn't negate some of the good work that other people have done in the Premier League. For instance, Ayu um, at Villa getting the goal this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel the same for the the obviously the other Ayu um, mm. who's on. Um, and you, I, I would have picked out a fair few individuals today again uh, for Swansea who look like I think Napoon said it again in a tweet they were playing for
0: the manager. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I guess that makes it kind of scary. Let's talk about Liverpool and Swansea right. now. Liverpool with a 1-0 victory at Anfield on Sunday. I've heard people describe this performance as a bit tepid from Liverpool. I, I suppose I'm inclined to agree the only thing that separates these two teams is a James Milner penalty conversion in the second half off of a disputed penalty. Disputed penalty, I, I find that to be such a weird designation, Lawrence, as if there's a difference between a disputed penalty and one that we all agree on. Ultimately, teams get cha- get handed challenges throughout the game. They have to overcome them or take advantage of their opportunities. It's all part of the sport. I I, I just don't get much joy off of dwelling on uh, well, officials' decisions.
1: Well, this won't give you any more joy, Richard. Uh, in the time that the Premier League's been around, Liverpool are now the team with the most penalty decisions ever to go for them, 135 I wonder how that's proportionate. I would love to see if that's just all in one season, like whether it's sort of, you can clearly see where Roy Evans has bought the referees off or something or, you know, (laughs) I don't know. I'd I'd love to see. Um, I was discussing that. Someone else today was like, well, I mean, that proves Manchester United don't get the decisions. And I was like, whoa, that's that's, that's an interesting leap. uh, (laughs) But okay. Um, uh, Yeah. Obviously I I think it looked very much as if the pool were not really going to make the breakthrough. Um, before this because actually Swansea uh, Swansea has set themselves out there to basically okay Liverpool are always going to play attacking sides like Manchester City um in a way which will make Liverpool look better and will actually make them look almost equal so they'll almost play up mm-hmm. but I was always worried about playing what I would consider a very bare faced team I did inverted commas there like Swansea because there's almost a and not a naivety or an honesty, but like I say, a bare-faced element to this side, which almost caused Liverpool to have to play their own way of football. And I still think there are a couple of players within that side who, when they have to be more pragmatic and more more uh, aggressive, then it's it's not about aggressively stealing the ball. It's about aggressively taking the ball to the opposition. I think Liverpool struggled with that again. Um, and that's something that I think um, Brendan Rodgers didn't necessarily deal with particularly well, and I think it's something that Jurgen Klopp knew today, and that's why he started uh, Benteké ahead of say having Benteké on the bench. Mm. Um, so I think you know that would be my overall thought for Liverpool. With, with regards to Swansea, you know I, I think the managers should get some time there. Mm.
0: the The Talking Fußball podcast. It's a podcast devoted to Germ- uh, the Bundesliga. They had a very interesting really? discussion on Thursday about the difference in managerial philosophies amongst a number of german managers jürgen klopp came up because they had a columnist on from one of the major German outlets who derided a number of German coaches for looking at the game as a series of mistakes that you're supposed to take advantage of, as in mistakes to find modern football, not creative play. And the author's contention was that's what separates coaches like Pep Guardiola, who really encourage masterful players to be creative, from coaches like Jurgen Klopp, who he definitely credited with all the accomplishments he, um, he deserves, but classified him as somebody that sets his team out to either create or take advantage of mistakes and obviously that worked remarkably last week against Manchester City but as you yeah. kind of alluded to here when you're at home against a team that is going to be content taking a point out of Anfield well there're not going to be many mistakes to be made in fact you're going to have to you're going to have to take the game to them and you're going to have to create something And given the nature of the penalty today, and again, penalties are penalties, but given the nature of the penalties today, you could say that Swansea didn't necessarily make enough mistakes for Jurgen Klopp's team to take advantage of. And in that way, as you alluded to, maybe there's still, not maybe, there definitely is still an element to this Liverpool team that uh,
1: needs to evolve. Certainly needs to evolve, although you'd say then they have the personnel within there to take advantage of those mistakes. And it wasn't as if those mistakes were so, it's not like every mistake therefore leads to Uh, an open goal and a ball right in front of it. You know, you still have to create something. And I'd say that there's a lot of players within that side who end up creating something, very quick thinkers. So I think it's more about Liverpool learning the the pace of their own game at home as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that's going to take mentally some time as well because, well, I mean, you know, just look at what was happening under Brendan Rodgers and how lethargic that team looked. Um, I think Brendan Rodgers has got a lot that Liverpool must thank him for. And I thought it was, again, Jurgen Klopp earlier in the week said, uh, you know, I spoke to Brendan, he didn't say what about, but I still think there are nice touches like that. But I still think that it also means that the memory of that isn't quite gone. It's very similar to when Rafa Benitez left the club, whichever manager took over was always going to have something to essentially make his own
0: From the red half of Liverpool to the blue, let's talk about Everton. This is probably the most remarkable match of the weekend. Oh,
1: the trauma. The
0: trauma. (sighs) Everton up 2-0, ends up uh, giving both those goals back at Bournemouth. Ross Barkley in the 95th minute puts Everton ahead, but in the 98th minute, time extended for three extra minutes because of the on-field celebration, which included a number of people coming onto the field from the stands. Junior Stanislaus gets his second goal of the match. Bournemouth, second straight week with a draw, 3-3. Just your reactions to this one, Lawrence. Definitely uh, the way it transpired, the most remarkable match of the weekend.
1: You did it to yourselves, didn't you? If you're going to celebrate like that, then there's not going to be much sympathy come the other way. Yeah. Um, That's what's disappointing is that actually the side probably, this Everton team had worked themselves into that position and it looked like a great. Um, almost exactly what Martinez would want, an exciting game, really nicely played football, exactly the right people scoring, people getting in exactly the right positions, Lukaku, everyone lining up perfectly around him, and then this right at the very end. Um, And I think, yeah, I mean, I was talking to an Everton fan today, they were talking about just the lack of savvy from the players um, and how frustrated they were about that.
0: Uh, Just to see that Bournemouth attack hit... The Everton defense with that speed and momentum throughout that last third of the game as the comeback was mounting, even after the final goal. Just so many times that Bournemouth is able to just have some actual speed getting even with going behind the defense, nobody from Everton stopping them. And to contrast that with an Everton team that scored, converted their first set piece of the year early, got goals from Lukaku and Barkley, Delafay with another brilliant ball to set up the Lukaku goal. It's like you said. On some levels, this would be exactly what Everton and Martinez would want. On another level, you just kind of scratch your head and wonder, what is this team doing letting Bournemouth control the match like that and dictate the opportunities during that last 30 minutes? Bournemouth, a team that might be the 19th best team in the league right now.
1: You almost deserve each other, I'd say, at that point. Because they both, they both almost want the other side to play that way so that they can take advantage of that style. But then when they do play that way... Then they also leave themselves open to that, mm-hmm. um, I think that's more about the managerial philosophy like you were talking about, maybe you know not looking at mistakes but looking at how you can outplay your the other side, and sometimes the other side is going to get overawed by that, mm-hmm. and that happened with both teams.
0: One more match to talk about before we go to break. West Ham, West Brom, 1-1. Uh, Zarate with a great free kick in the first half puts the hammers up. Another own goal benefits West Brom, just like last week when Mikel Arteta allowed them to take three points against Arsenal. This time, it allows them to get a point at Upton Park. Thoughts on this
1: game, Lawrence? Hmm. You know what? The frustration. I don't know how to put it. Not frustration. The difficulty with which we analyze any side that pulis manages mm-hmm. how do you go about that because it seems like like i was making that noise last week and that's the only summary noise i can come up with uh, yeah this works i
0: I, you know? I just found myself get away from the microphone for a second to take this deep exhale because the analysis i think is pretty easy you have to acknowledge the efficacy of what tony pulis does uh his record of not getting relegated kind of speaks for itself at the same time, you don't have to say that today's result was anything more than, I don't want to say luck, but these are the kind of things that Tony Pulis seems to thrive on. Uh, put, keeping his team in situations where own goals and set pieces can allow him to scratch enough points together to Forcefulness.
1: survive. Forcefulness. I think, about the side. And I, I guess that's something to appreciate, because actually I think the practicality of even playing 11 men out on a pitch and getting them to be... I imagine there's a real managerial satisfaction to that. Yeah. But it seems very it seems very Pulis-centric. Yeah. And that's part of the problem with it, because it, it doesn't play to other people's strengths. So it's not getting the best, it's just getting the minimum.
0: And you, you kind of wonder if Tony Pulis kind of drags his team down to a level where he can justify playing like this, rather than having his team aspire to a level that would then bring us out of this kind of analysis and perhaps engender him into other criticisms. And again, let's keep in mind what Tony Pulis did at palace. It was slightly different, but at the same time, there were still some very Pu- Pulisian elements in there.
1: Um, yeah. 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 So, although you got to, I, I would say Pulis's palace, obviously at times they were the, you know, the zenith of what he wants, but at times, like you say, there were, there were some really progressive sides that and I think in many ways he almost gets to the precipice of getting his team to that level. Mm. But then they, it's almost like they never quite take the jump and they require someone else to do that.
0: Well, let's go ahead and take our break now, our last break. When we come back, we'll get you updated on Germany and Italy. We'll talk about our top fours, and then we'll talk about the teams closer to the bottom of the table. Aston Villa against Watford, Crystal Palace, handing Newcastle another disappointing result, and another manager that seems to fit into some of our constructed archetypes. Sam Allardyce getting a result with Sunderland. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. our last trip to Europe, let's start in Germany where Bayern continued to dominate, this weekend with a 2-0 win over visiting Hertha Berlin. If anything, though, the final scoreline reads as a slight vindication for Hertha, a side that's challenging for the top four. Bayern went into Saturday's match having scored at least four goals in each of their four previous games, and the last time they scored fewer than four goals in a league game at home was September 12th against Augsburg. Hertha didn't come close to pulling off an upset, but they and they were outshot 24-4, to down two goals at halftime, but in a league where everybody gets steamrolled by Munchen, Hertha ended up a little less flattened than most teams that visit the Allianz Arena. Elsewhere, second-place Dortmund survived their quick turnaround from a Europa League trip to Russia with a 4-1 win over Stuttgart, while Wolfsburg, Gladbach, Bayer, and Schalke all dropped points this weekend. In Italy, the weekend's biggest game, a 1-2 battle between Napoli and Inter, takes place on Monday, while in France, PSG's lead over second-place Con is 13 points, with both teams winning 4-1 this weekend. Lawrence, the second of our traditions our top fours. I'm going to go first because there's not much explaining for me to do, as my both of my top fours look very similar to the way they have over last month uh, on form. I'm still going with Spurs 1 if we had seen some more victories this weekend from teams maybe spurs wouldn't be here but i have spurs leicester liverpool and manchester united as my four form teams that fourth spot is just so tricky because it's so hard to look at manchester united and call them a form side but it's been quite a while since they lost now uh end of the season
1: asking you to ask some questions of yourself hey richard
0: yeah and unfortunately while i'm good at asking myself questions i'm really bad at answering them uh end of the season same top four i've had for about a month city arsenal united spurs Uh, I I still see a pretty big gap between 1 and 2. I guess perhaps more justifiably so now that Arsenal seems to be stumbling. Really, 2 through 5, if you put Liverpool 5, I could see almost in any order
1: at this point. Lawrence? Any order? Literally any order? Yeah, I
0: mean, it's hard to say Liverpool 2, but the way that United and Arsenal are playing, is it really beyond Liverpool to be able to not only beat those teams, but... To put up more wins than we're seeing from those two teams at this point, it's a very unconvincing league this year. And while I still believe Manchester City, when they're healthy, are going to be the t- the, the winners, I think th- those four teams behind them you can almost shake them up and roll them out as if they were dice in a cup.
1: Interesting. I, I would say uh, for me, it's slightly different. I form wise, I'm going to put um, I'm going to put Spurs, City, and I'm going to put. Spurs, Leicester, City, United. Yeah, I, as I just, the current top I, four.
0: I just couldn't go City based on what they did two weeks ago against Liverpool. But at the same time, it's one result. So yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, and it's such a freak result that there's kind of this. Yeah, but then it, I mean, it looks freak. But then you also say we were just talking a second ago about how Liverpool tried to play in a freakish way. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe it's not a freak result. Yeah, um, If the other team is trying to do that against you, is it a freakish result? I don't know. Um, And then my end of the season is going to be City, Arsenal, United, Liverpool. Hmm. Boy, yeah.
0: I, I really wish Kartik were here this week. Uh, I would love to hear your view, his views after a weekend that really. Views just, Kartik. Yeah, Kartik. Uh, after a weekend where there was just a lot of murky stuff this weekend, a lot of close matches, un- un- unconvincing performances, even Manchester yeah. City winning by two goals. The nature of those first two goals and the nature of their defense. There's a lot
1: of reason for doubts in there. Uh, Kartik's like a newspaper press. He like takes gray and makes it look black and white, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, Kartik's going to be back next weekend. Everybody, thank God. Uh... Let's talk about the three matches right, we have. <laughs> Let's talk about the three matches we haven't touched on yet. Let's talk about Aston Villa Watford first a 3-2 result goes the Hornets way. Is this how bad it's gotten for Aston Villa that we look at the fact that they scored two goals as a sign of progress with them?
1: Yeah, that is how bad it's gotten for Aston Villa. They they were really poor at one point. Um, and it was, you know, the, there are some I think the problem is the club are now discovering what mistakes they've made over the last few years. It's almost like, okay, put it this way. You know, when you try and write an essay at university, I had this experience and I I had the trouble of speaking about the future, but also, so I was very sort of idealistic and I would sort of be like, oh, this is all going to happen in the future. But then it was all tethered to what was happening right now. Mm. So Villa have a very clear idea of now of what they want to do in the future, which is to do with youth and development of the club. Then that's tethered to the reality that is now that they need to deal with the immediate. Yes, And the immediate looks pretty poor. It, um, looks ex-
0: it looks excessively poor at times. and But at the same time, like you said, this is a sign of progress. They they seem to have a steady way of playing now. They don't have Sherwood tinkering <laughs> with their formation. They score two goals. Watford is a pretty good team. They're 11th eleventh 11th place right now. Uh, and mm-hmm. If anything, they're making progress to where you can say they they may be a little bit better than the 11th best team in England right now. And yet the bottom line is Villa with five points through 13 rounds it's tied for the worst start ever in the Premier League. And there's a stark reality to that.
1: Yeah, although you would never put Aston Villa as the, the same kind of whipping boys in the Premier League as uh, have been referred to at Derby in the past. Right. You know, Which, it's it just silly. doesn't seem that way, does it?
0: It just seems more and more inevitable that by this time next year, instead of saying there are seven teams that have never been relegated, there's we're going to be down to six. It's
1: almost because they don't look. they don't look plucky i guess I suppose. um in the same way that Derby, Derby almost sort of tried to play and you'd be like that's very sweet yeah but it like villages don't sometimes but yeah. they did today they that's did. what this they weekend's
0: result to- felt like though it felt like those darby team those darby teams it's just like after darby changed coach changed managers that year and they would come out and you'd be oh this is this is the match where they actually look good and these players that i i think are playing positive football they actually put forth no. a result and it just doesn't happen
1: yeah um mr bill style right um and then uh, the, 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 the contrast to that with Watford is that they actually, obviously they conceded two goals to Villa, but also managed to win the game. And I think with that, look, I mean, just look at their formation. It almost doesn't, it, 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 I don't think that a lot of what Watford do is supposed to work in the Premier League. And I especially <laughs> think sometimes their formation is not supposed to work in the Premier League. Mm. But you'd imagine they'll stay up with it this season. Uh, and I think they'll work with it in that time.
0: Yeah, uh, one worrisome note for Watford: Aurelio Gomez had to leave injured in the second half of this match. Worrisome? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, oh no, he's going off. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about another team in the relegation battle. That would be Newcastle. Forgive me, Palace fans, but there's really no way to talk about Palace winning five-one without. Approaching it from the angle of how bad
1: is Newcastle, I feel like we've I was, been very. I a report live from the game, Richard, mm-hmm. and that person said they'd never seen someone so spineless, so poorly organized, with no midfield, and such a poor backline pairing, and that confuses me. I I understand in the past. I mean, the problem is that almost seems like the um, exactly what you'd almost expect from this McLaren side, mm-hmm. but that's really problematic because. You know, you don't want that to be what, what this McLaren side actually turns out. You almost wanted it to combine and have the the class of what McLaren brings mixed with the tenacity of what the side offers. And it almost seems now like a bit more like oil and water or, you know, oil and vinegar, if you like.
0: Or at least 13 rounds of the season, you don't want your manager, when trying to explain why his team was so bad, saying that they're not doing the basics right. If anything, you want it the other way around where it's your job, Steve. Yeah, you want it the other way around where maybe Remy Guard can go to the press and say, you know, we're starting to get the basic building blocks in place, and maybe a month, two months down the road, we can get some uh, results. It's the opposite with Steve McLaren, where it seems like it's falling apart. And you keep coming back to this with McLaren. He was not good during the second half of the season last year with Derby. And they weren't sad to see him go. It was a team that was expected to fight for promotion, did fight for promotion at the beginning of the year, and then tailed off dramatically. So with Newcastle, with McLaren, you, I keep coming back to the same question. When was the last time this guy showed that he was capable mm-hmm. of managing mm-hmm. a team at this level? It's been too part? long. It's been too long, right? 20? Of this level? Yeah, it's probably, it's probably it's been 20, right? So, um so that that might be the start of Newcastle's problems. I think the fact that the players that they have brought in over the last few years, which a lot of people have given that club credit for, their scouting networks, particularly in France, there is kind of also a mercenary element to it. It's a way station to the next thing for most of those players. And while a lot of those players don't ever make it to the next place, it's the attitude still persists. So when you then find yourself in a relegation battle, one where you have to evoke a little bit of pride in the club, pride in yourself. It's not so much there for people that are willing to make this move to begin with. I, I think it's a very troublesome situation, Lawrence.
1: Good point, but at the same time, I think there's enough players there. And I think certainly the problem is that Newcastle don't strike you as that kind of a team because you go to their stadium, you look at the size of it, you go and you you see the fans, the supporters, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I, it, it just shouldn't be that way.
0: No, it shouldn't. It absolutely should not. Oh, how things
1: have fallen since Alan Pardew left Newcastle. Um, and that's the frustration, isn't it? Because look how well that Crystal Palace team are playing. Hmm. blasi on one wing. Zaha on the other. Conor Wickham, like you say. And then in midfield, the, the brilliant Kabai. Back line, Scott Dan. You know, do we miss Baroni? No, not really.
0: They they did earlier this year, but they're overcoming that. You didn't even mention MacArthur, who had two goals this weekend, and Punchin had another one. Um, let's talk about, let's stay up north. Let's talk about Sunderland Stoke. Uh, Sunderland greatly benefited here. Ryan Shaw crossed, getting his second yellow card early in the second half. Sunderland scores two late goals, two wins in a row. Uh, as with any game that where so much is played 11-on-10, it's hard to draw too much from this. At the same time, Lawrence, two wins in a row for Sunderland, a very good win on Monday that we didn't get to talk about. And mm-hmm. at least Sam Allardyce is putting his team in situations to take advantage of mistakes other people are having. And that alone is a step forward for a team which, until Monday, was in the bottom three.
1: The, those are juxtaposed with the ideas of what Sam Allardyce and Sunderland should be doing. Um, they play, they play teams that, I think... Sam Allardyce will be glad to have played hmm. because they're teams that Sam Allardyce will believe he can, you know, boss and sort of get under. Um, I think we've seen that happen twice there. I mean, twice I think you've seen Stoke and other fans walk away from those sorts of games, especially against Sam Allardyce, and sort of go, "How the hell did that happen?" Hmm. You know, yeah. I think Stoke fans are going to feel very similar in this game because, I, and generally, people put down. I think there's got to be more analysis, but I don't know how to apply it to them. They were just scrappier than us, you know, or they just wanted it more. I mean,
0: there is a solidity to the fact he's gone with three central defenders. He still has both Caterol and Mvila in the middle. He has wing backs that certainly can give people trouble, if not just stay with people. Uh, Sticking with young DeAndre Yedlin on the right. I feel the need to mention that since he's U.S. international. But yeah. the results, the results, Confine. the results speak for themselves. Uh, in eight, eight games before Allardyce, zero victories, three victories in six since Allardyce has been there. That's something's going right there. Even if it's not spectacularly right, it's going right.
1: Yeah, I did. I did feel. I mean, you, you've always seen the potential in this side. There's a lot of very talented players, and I don't think there was ever any doubt over Big Sam in, in the longer term sense but I think there was short term doubt in the fact that hmm. you know the, these players probably had bigger aspirations when they went to Sunderland than they do now
0: yeah w- were they willing to be were they willing to engage in this fight and at least Sam Allardyce has them focused on it uh,
1: midweek what, what if it's a fight that you don't think needs to be engaged in
0: what if you just go out and play football exactly hmm. Midweek, not Champions League, it's League Cup, the quarterfinals. Uh, Three games on Tuesday, Middlesbrough versus Everton. Stoke City hosting Sheffield Wednesday, Manchester City hosting Hall. The only Premier League, Premier League battle is on Wednesday, Southampton versus Liverpool. Lawrence, from those four fixtures, what jumps out to
1: you? Middlesbrough, obviously, Everton, Middlesbrough, um, aside... I think the Premier League sorely misses, um, although they don't embody any of the same sort of um, characteristics characteristics that they did when they were in the Premier League. Um and against Everton aside are obviously gonna play beautiful football. I think that uh when it comes down to Manchester City versus Hull City, oh, it's good to have you back, Steve. Um and and then obviously when we see Stoke v Sheffield Wednesday, we know about the run that Sheffield Wednesday feel they're on, um, and the way that they Sheffield f- Wednesday and, and most Sheffield on. sides, yeah, well the, side, the it, it's very much a feeling in Sheffield. Um, yeah. The the way that Sheffield sides like to go on runs like these, but you honestly, you again, you miss them. And the, uh, what we're getting here is a lot of sides we miss in the Premier League. Um, a, a and then of, Liverpool, Liverpool-Southampton. Yeah, we missed both them in the Premier
0: League. A couple of interesting managers here. Uh, Hull City has stuck with Steve Bruce. Uh, it's very rare that you see managers stay with their teams after going down, although uh, not so yeah. rare this year. But uh, the way that Hull City went down, you would expect them to make a change. I get what happened. you mean, yeah. Yeah, Hull is actually looking like a good bet to at least challenge to come back up. But I think uh, the manager at Borough... Some budge around Karanka has a good pedigree. People like the way that Burrow have been playing. I agree with you. I don't know if I miss them, but given the shuffle that happens in the Premier League all the time, I would like to see Middlesbrough at least in that shuffle because I think I've said before, I have a soft spot for those Gareth Southgate teams. And although obviously Southgate isn't with this club anymore and uh, the team is playing much differently, I also would like to see them back up. And at the same time... I guess I wouldn't be totally shocked to see them knock off Everton, assuming Everton does engage in some level of rotation midweek.
1: You almost almost, you almost you feel like Everton are going to have to engage in some form of rotation yeah. and also some form of match it, with this Middlesbrough side. I think they'll engage in head-on Middlesbrough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that'll, that'll be for a, a very exciting game. But I also, you sort of worry, you don't worry for Everton. Do Everton really care about the league? Job? I don't know. Um I think that the, part of the frustration for them is they just want to win something, mm. so the League Cup seems like the easiest target.
0: I Agree, and at the same time, I to go to the it seems like every time you mention one, you have to mention the other. This is a great opportunity for silverware for Liverpool and for a new manager that's come in has had a incredible positive effect early on it would be a great springboard into either a top four challenge next year or a real challenge a top four challenge this year or a real challenge next year if they can claim some silverware and I just I think this is a great opportunity for Klopp particularly given that he doesn't necessarily rotate his team he he doesn't necessarily rank one competition against another as we've seen by how he's approached Europa League I think Klopp is going to take this one seriously and I think this is a competition that based on the teams that are in it, I really like them to win.
1: The thing was, it was Klopp's third match um, that Liverpool played Southampton. Southampton actually had a man sent off in that match, and so people um, will feel that there's more of a test here for Liverpool. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, obviously Liverpool evolved a little bit more. I think that Southampton have had a few clippings of their wings since. Um, I think both sides will wanting, be wanting to play the other, and essentially... Prove that they didn't. It, it was almost somewhat of a misnomer in the first match, and there is a win possible here. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we're not going to talk very much about the League Cup results as those happen midweek. And we have another week of action coming up ahead of us in the, 14th, the 15th round of the Premier League ahead. Uh, we're going to be doing a special show next week where we tend to focus on the top of the table, at least work from the top of the table down with each of the shows. Next weekend, we're going to really focus on the relegation battle, spend extra time paying attention to Aston Villa, Newcastle, Bournemouth, Sunderland. But until then, Lawrence... Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley, and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk. Or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Karthik Krishnar is at KKFLA 737. And I'm at Richard Farley. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.